Morning. In this last half of the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus has been teaching his disciples. These men are the leaders who are going to take over his earthly ministry and are going to write down the New Testament. Last week, we saw God's view of marriage and divorce. And now, here we see what it looks like to be a true believer in Jesus Christ. Today in this section, section, Jesus shows us about the source of true salvation. If you think salvation comes from something you do, you're mistaken. But if you realize that it's nothing that you can do, and that salvation is what God does, then you get it. That's the high-level summary of this section. So the first part of the text today is in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. It's a bit familiar to us all, so let's follow along as I read. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it. As we look at what your word says to us, help us to lay ourselves aside. Lay aside what we might think. Lay aside what the world might tell us. Help us focus only on what you tell us. And I pray that you would help us to follow you. I pray that the words that I speak may be yours and not my own, that we can glorify you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the people were bringing children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. That's verse 13. Now, the meaning of the Greek word here for children is little children, toddlers, little, little kids. It's very common for, children to bring to, uh, for parents to bring their little children to a rabbi so that the rabbi could pray for them, give them a blessing, pray for their future. It was very, very common. In fact, in the Jewish Talmud, it encourages parents to do just that. Part of the oral law that was codified and written down tells parents to do just that. Get your child to the rabbi. They bring their, child, their children now to Jesus, that Jesus might hold them, that Jesus might bless them. I love that. I would encourage all parents to do the same. Get your kids to Jesus as young as you can. 
bring them to him. As, an impre as impressionable as they are, as much as they'll receive, get your children to Jesus early that he might bless them. Parents, you are partners with God in making disciples of your children. Think of yourself in that capacity. You're God's partners to train this child in the ways of God. That's your role. His disciples tried to send the people away, tried to dismiss the children. They viewed Jesus' interactions as being for adults only. That these children would be a distraction and they would get in the way. Verse 14. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. The first thing we see in this set of verses is that Jesus values and loves children. There are many scriptures that proclaim the value of children, the blessing that children are. If we look at Psalm 127.3, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. In Proverbs 17.6, it says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. We see in Scripture a value and a level of respect and blessing that children are. They are a good thing. Whether they are planned or unplanned, the children are a blessing. They are a good thing that we should value. He said, let the little children come unto me. Do not forbid them, for of such, notice that of such, is the kingdom of God. That's an important little phrase. It's an important little nugget of truth here. Of such is the kingdom. These children were too young to have a kind of faith that we would expect for people who make decisions for Christ to have. I believe embedded in this truth is the idea that God extends salvation to little children below what we would call the age of accountability. What happens to the souls of these little children if they happen to die before they grow up? I believe they go directly into the presence of God. And I believe that anybody whose mental capacity is severely limited by disease or age, it's extended to them as well. Because Jesus loves and values children, we should love and value children as well. We should advocate for children, for their protection, their health, their safety, as well as the unborn. There is clear evidence of the value of life even before birth, and we see it in Scripture. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So Jesus values and loves children, and Jesus desires the children to come to him. He desires for children to know him. Jesus came into the world to reconcile the world to himself, and that includes children. The disciples assumed his ministry was for the adults present and that the children were just a nuisance, but his desire was for them as well. Notice in verse 14 it says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Our second section for today deals with the entry to the kingdom of God for grown-ups. So follow me in your Bible as we read Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. And Jesus started on his way, or as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with this, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and the age to come and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The topic of living forever does not come up much outside of the faith 
until there is a context to discuss it. Christians talk about it all the time because in the New Testament, the passages and, and uh, promises are proclaimed to us. For example, we read, we read from Jesus' words in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Paul says something similar in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John the Apostle says something like it in 1 John 5.11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Well, the point here is that the Bible emphasizes eternal life over and over and over again. But perhaps we, and definitely our society and our culture, do not think about eternal life much because we are blinded by the doctrines, the ideologies, and the thoughts of the times that we are living in. Our world says to us that we need to stay young. We know that because they offer to us age prevention products, some type of elixir that would suggest that you're not going to grow old and you won't have the things that old people have. And you drink this or that or do that. And maybe you've already accepted that you're old and you look old. So for you, they have restorative products. You too can stay young, suggesting that what we're all going for is that this life is all there is. So if I stay young in this life, then I'm going to do pretty good. Why? Because there's really nothing else, our world tells us, but to live it to the full. They'll sell you a great vacation package. They'll entertain you. They'll help you have the most fun. They'll fulfill your fantasies, giving you instant gratification, because this life is all there is. If it's not being said directly, it's being said subtly. Have your best life now. Live it up to the full, because that's all we get. So instant gratification is king. Our world tells us to acquire wealth, and we don't even know why. Save, build, hoard, store up, build bigger barns. It's not about being generous. It's not about helping people. But just store up. Store up, and then you die. And then give it to your kids and pray they'll use it wisely. But that die part, we leave out. Not when you're old, you don't. You really hope that that's not going to happen. Or maybe the government will get your money. In case you didn't make a will or if you fill out your living trust improperly, does happen. Our world tells us that it's all meaningless. Maybe you've heard of nihilism, which has become very popular 
We just reject all the notions of moralism or any principles that would tell us what's right and wrong, what's true about this life, and what is true about what is coming. Because it's all meaningless, right? That's nihilism. It's very popular today. But then a tragedy occurs, a death, a sickness, financial collapse of some kind. And there's a question that looms over every person. And that is this. What else is there beyond this life? Is there more than what I'm experiencing? Is there more than this life? There are a lot of questions that a person might ask. A lot of reasons that they might ask them. Questions about eternal life. Questions about afterlife. But there is only one place, or let's just say there's only one person that can give us the answer. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who declared about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Eternal life is to know Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we get to observe an interaction today between Jesus and a rich young man. The Bible calls it, well, it doesn't actually say this about him, but we call him the rich young ruler. And the question around this interaction is, what about eternal life and how do I get it? So verse 17 says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This passage is typically called the story of the rich young ruler. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he was rich or wealthy. He had great possessions. Matthew tells us he was young. Luke tells us he was a ruler. So you put all of them together, and he was a rich young ruler. In a sense, though, he was poor. He walked away from Jesus. We will see at the end of this section, although he was wealthy materially, he was bankrupt spiritually and externally, or eternally. I know he's called a rich young ruler, but we'll see here he only needs our pity. But he does something that's outside the character as a rich ruler. He runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him. He falls on his knees. A man like this would not do that. When it says that he knelt before Jesus, it's the exact same terminology that you read in Mark 1, where the leper fell down before Jesus. So he was in earnest. People are watching him. But I think when we read this text, we find that it shows us the sincerity of this man. He was listening to Jesus, maybe from afar, and he was under conviction for sure. He knew that something was missing in his life. And so he says to Jesus on his knees, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That question reveals two flaws in his thinking. Number one, that Jesus is merely like any other great human teacher, a good teacher, a good master, 
putting Jesus on the same level as any other great rabbinical teacher. Obviously, Jesus was more than that. Jesus, his second flaw in this question, is it possible to earn your way to heaven? What must I do, emphasis on I do, to inherit eternal life? On to verse 18. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. So Jesus confronts him. Why do you call me good? Jesus isn't concerned about being called good by this man. Some other religions may say, see, in this passage, Jesus is denying his deity. No, he's not. He's challenging the man. Why do you call me good? Not, why am I being called good? Why do you call me good? Because the man thought, if I could just find out what you know, if I could just learn what you've learned, then I could be like you. I can achieve it. I can do it myself. It's not something that I receive. I don't have to feel like I can't. I know that I can. So he sees Jesus as a man, but he does not believe him to be God. Jesus is saying only one of two things. Number one, I'm not good. Obviously not. Or I am God. God is intrinsically good by nature, and that is God himself. Verse 19, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus mentioned six of the Ten Commandments, which are on the second table of the law. Remember, the Ten Commandments were divided into two sections. The first four deal with your relationship vertically with God. The second six deal with your relationship with people. Jesus says, you know the commandments, and he gives them five out of the ten. Those five are specific in how you treat other people. But it's funny to me because he throws in a sixth that's not a commandment. It's do not defraud. Scholars wonder why Jesus says this to him. We don't know. Maybe it's the way the rich young ruler acquired his wealth, maybe. And Jesus was throwing a seed into the conversation because he wanted the man to know. I don't know. Perhaps that's the case. But the rich young ruler responds very quickly to Jesus and says, verse 20, Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Notice there's no confession of faith. There's no profession of need. None of that. Just all these things I have kept. When you have time with people, ask them the question, why should God let you into heaven? You ever asked that question or been asked that question? When you ask it, people will say things like, well, I try to be good. I live a good life. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a criminal. I believe God sees me and he's going to think of me in contrast to other people that I'm worthy to enter in. But here's the problem. Every one of those is an answer that starts with the word I. 
and it's already wrong. He did it for me. He paid a price that I couldn't pay. He went on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. He did what I could not do. Not I, I, I. It's he, 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 and he is the only answer. He is worthy to stand before a holy and righteous God and come into heaven forevermore. It's he and not I. We have a desire for more. We might have a conviction that something is missing, like this man did. But if we have a wrong or superficial view of Jesus, this will not lead us to heaven. And that's what we see in this man. He's got conviction. He's got desire. But he has a wrong, a superficial view of Jesus. He thinks Jesus is just a good teacher, just a little better than himself. And he's got a superficial view of sin. I'm a pretty good person. I fulfill the commandments. Really? Really? I've done all these things since my youth, he says. Really? Were you not an adolescent? Were you not a teenager? You never had a rebellious moment? Really? Come on. I mean, outwardly, maybe no one knows the depth of your sin, but that's what the guy is saying. I'm pretty good. He's got a superficial view of sin. He can't even admit that he's done anything wrong. He's looking for Jesus just to give him the next step in his stairway to heaven. Obvious this, obviously, this man had not heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus explained to the people that if you've refrained from blatant adultery, but you have lust in your heart, you've broken the law. And even if you've never taken a human life, stabbing somebody to death, say, if you've been angry without just cause, you've hated your brother. If you've insulted him, you've broken the law against murder. And Jesus revealed that the demands of God's law are far deeper than the mere simple outward obedience that it spells out. He must have a superficial view of salvation as well. He believes that salvation is something that you can earn. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Rather than, what am I missing? He needs to just humble himself to the fullest extent rather than asking the next step he needs to take. Where in your life are you tempted to think that you're good enough? That's a great question today. Good enough to inherit eternal life? Good enough to stand before a holy and righteous God and get to heaven? For those of us that are Christ followers, where are we tempted to think that we're good enough? Jesus said that a surrendered heart is required if you want to follow him. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have to the poor 
Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It says Jesus, looking at him, loved him. What that look must have looked like. The loving look of Jesus is something that Peter sure remembers. And remember, this, uh, this book is written by Mark, but probably dictated by Peter. And so this is actually Peter's thoughts. So the loving, book, loving look of Jesus is something that Peter sure remembers as he tells Mark who writes this. Peter remembers the day that he saw Jesus look at that wealthy, successful young man knowing that it was a look of sheer love, that he'd seen that before. He knew it, maybe because Peter remembers it was the same look that Jesus had for him that night that Peter betrayed Jesus. The same look, perhaps, a look of love that melted his heart, and he saw it again. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here when he's saying sell everything and give it to the poor. He's not giving people a call to poverty or philanthropy. He's not saying that if you give or sell everything or become poor and become like a philanthropist, you'll earn your way to heaven. That's not it at all. He is simply exposing the true heart of a self-righteous young man who says, I've kept the law since I was young. Jesus is not saying you're saved by the law. He's using the law as a probe to expose his heart, to show this young man that he has not kept the law from his youth. The idea was to stop the young man dead in his tracks, to get him to realize that he was owned by another God. He said, I know I've kept all these commandments. Yeah, but there's one commandment, young man, that you haven't kept. And that's the first commandment, which says, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods besides me. I can prove that you are serving another God. Go sell what you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Verse 22. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. By his silence, this young man says, I won't do that. And because he won't do that, that proves that money owns him, that wealth owns him, those possessions own him. That's your God. That's the God that you serve. And that's the saddest verse in this narrative. One of the saddest verses in all of Scripture is... But he was sad at this word and went away. He walked away from salvation. He walked away from Jesus. The one thing he lacked was this. He lacked a surrendered heart that was totally dependent on God rather than himself. That's the one thing he lacked. It wasn't about wealth. It wasn't about finances. It wasn't about possessions. It was that his possessions had a hold of him and he couldn't see it. He was so blind to it that Jesus had to point it out. And he did it in a way 
where he said, get rid of all your stuff. Give it to the people who you deem lesser than yourself. And then come and follow me. Giving him the greatest invitation that he ever could have had. Why was this hard for the young man? Because this man was looked upon like he was blessed in the community. In the culture at that time, if you had money, you were blessed by God. If you were poor, you might be cursed by God. This man was probably from a very important family. He had status. He had position. He was looked at as blessed. That's the theology of their day. And so you're blessed or you're cursed, depending on what you look like outwardly. The law-abiding citizen that he was, people looked up to this man. Wow, what an awesome young man. I want to be just like him. He's great. He's respectable. He's a good citizen. But Jesus looked at his heart and saw what no one else did. This synagogue attender, this tither, this decent, good person in a community. Jesus saw that his possessions and his position possessed him. But he was too blind to see it. God's perspective is this. If we cannot let go of what we have, then we will not lay hold of what we need. If we cannot learn to let go of some things, we will never lay hold of what God wants to give us, which is always better. Verse 23 through 25. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, notice he calls them children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. As the young man is walking away, picture this in your mind. Jesus makes it extremely clear how serious the idolatry of wealth is. Why is it hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God and stay on the straight and narrow path? Because wealthy people do not feel their need Wealthy people have everything taken care of. They have it all under control. They have a security that I can buy what I want, do what I want, go where I want, and I have a need of nothing. And it creates a blindness where we do not see that they really have a need and something that they cannot buy. It only comes from God. We have to receive it. That's what wealth does. The scriptures again and again tell us this. Matthew 6, 19, Jesus said, Where our treasure is, is where our hearts will be also. It was in the context of him teaching, you cannot have two masters. It will be either God or it will be mammon. The spirit of mammon or money. It will be God or it will be money but you can only serve one. Money is a test of discipleship. Matthew 13, says, 
Jesus said, the deceitfulness of riches, not riches, but the deceitfulness of riches, will choke out the word of God from bearing fruit in our lives. That's a warning. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Paul was teaching Timothy to tell his congregation to be content in what you have, having enough, having a roof over your head, have enough money to live, having enough food to eat. Be content, because we take nothing with us when we leave this earth. Solomon, the richest person ever in all his splendor, did not have some of the basic things that we take for granted. He did not have instant hot water, for instance. And thank God that I do. He could not just drive someplace and get a hot meal in a couple of minutes. It took hours to prepare food. Even though he could get whatever he wanted, it still took hours. For you and me, it's minutes. The things, the amenities that we have today, the kind of wealth is something that is unimaginable, even, in, even to the richest person that has ever lived in ancient days. We are wealthy beyond their belief. Wealth blinds us to our spiritual need for God. The disciples asked, well, who can be saved? This guy's better than we are. Jesus says, you're right to ask that question. Nobody will get into the kingdom by human achievement or human goodness. It's impossible. That means God has to do something. Jesus is telling them that decent, well-intentioned, moral, kind, sincere, even convicted people will still go to hell. They will. That's why the gospel of Jesus is so great. That's why it's called the good news. It's the greatest message in the world. It's the best thing that we have going for us. It's that Jesus did what we couldn't do. He lived a life that we couldn't live. He died in our place for the, give, for the forgiveness of our sins. He rose from the dead supernaturally because the same spirit that is in him that rose from the dead, he says, towards those who believe will live in us. He promises that he is returning to those who trust in him and turn to him with faith and repentance. This is the good news for the person that is willing to humble themselves. Not just one day, but every day. We stay on the narrow road. We live on the narrow road. We welcome his conviction to become like him. And not just to submit to him, not just to profess him, but to become like him. The fact is, friends, Jesus is actually a rich young ruler, if you think about it. In the world's eyes, this guy's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. He's got everything that everybody wants, and he's standing in front of someone that has everything that nobody can see. Jesus is the rich young ruler. He owns it all. He has it all. The man doesn't understand the invitation, 
He doesn't understand the one he's standing in front of. Jesus got what we deserved in death so that we could have what he deserved in resurrection. This is the gospel. Verse 26 and 27. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Just let that sink in. Because if you're thinking, I want to get saved, what can I do to enter the kingdom of God? What good thing must I do? Like the rich young ruler, it's impossible. It can't be done. You can't save yourself. But not with God, he continues. For with God, all things are possible. What is humanly impossibility is a divine certainty. Because salvation is a free gift of God. But you can't earn it. You can only receive it. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. He's uh, obviously overheard the young man. And he's saying, hey, we've got it better than that young man. We've actually done what you've asked. We've given everything away. We're following you now. Peter says, we have left everything to follow you. It's almost like he's looking for an affirmation. Well, Jesus, look what we've done. It was good, right? What we did was what you wanted, right? And Jesus says this to him. Oh, Peter, you have left nothing. You are slowly walking towards more than you can ever imagine. When you get here, you will realize you left nothing. This was nothing. Let go of that. Peter, because you are slowly walking towards eternal glory, that's what's going to be beyond anything you could ever imagine. You think you've left something? You did not. You just responded to the only call that matters in your earthly existence. You made the right choice. And the day, there's a day coming when the veil is going to be lifted. And you will see what choice you made. And the only thing you will wish is that everybody else had done the same. You will realize that people allowed the lies of the world to soak into their heart. To believe that this was better than that. And it was a lie. It was a lie. I read a story this week about a very large man that was drowning. A true story. And he was panicking in the water. He was swinging his arms all around. He was trying to save himself. And the lifeguard had jumped into the water about three feet to five feet away from him. But the lifeguard didn't approach him. He could have saved his life, but the man was swinging around, and the lifeguard just stayed where he was. And everybody around was wondering why. When the man's efforts were all gone and his energy was depleted, then the lifeguard rushed in, and he saved the life. And the bystanders asked this question. They asked, why did the lifeguard wait? And the lifeguard was quoted as saying, as long as he was trying to save himself, there was nothing I could do for him. 
He had to stop trying to save himself because he was going to take me down with him. The minute he stopped trying to save himself is the minute that I rushed in and saved him. Isn't that a great parallel to the gospel? That's what it's all about, friends. You've got to stop trying to save yourselves by human effort because we can't. You've got to abandon that road and all that it means in our life. The problem that the Bible makes clear to us is that there is no facet of our human existence that remains unaffected by sin. That sin has affected and infected the human intellect so that we think wrongly about things. Not that we can, can't think properly about some, but that sinful the sinful mind is at enmity with God. It doesn't submit to the law of God, nor can it do so. You see, what happened to this young man was this. His inflated sense of his own righteousness had blinded him to the fact that he had broken the first two commandments. He didn't love God with all his heart and his mind and his strength. He had idols in his life. And one of his big idols had to do with what he had amassed. And he was unaware of the fact until it was pointed out to him by Jesus. If it had been that external righteousness was the answer to entry, then this guy would have had a better shot than most people. But Jesus has already taught in Mark 7 we saw that it is not the things that go into a man that defile him. It's the things that come out of a man that defile him. So the problem is internal. That every sin, it's an inside job. And when Paul writes about it, he says plainly that we are actually dead in our trespasses and in our sins. So the key then is to understand this dilemma. The key to understanding a dilemma is again to be found in simply the unfolding story of God. God had promised through the prophet Ezekiel that he was going to sprinkle clean water and make clean and set the people free from their idols, provide a new heart and a new spirit and put it within them and remove a heart that was stony and give them a heart of flesh. In other words, the answer to the question is a heart transplant. If you are prepared to acknowledge that the problem that you face is the problem of your heart, dead at enmity with God, then the promise of God's word is that he will give you a new heart. A new heart. Only when he gives you a new heart, it enables you to abandon everything for Christ. Then we'll be free from the personal forces of idolatry that hold us in their grip. And we will be free to yield to the principles of the kingdom. Salvation is not what we can do for God. It's about what Jesus has done for us already. Verse 29 through 31. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me 
and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first would be last, and the last first. So we leave the story of the young man that Jesus loved. There might have been a measure of smugness about him, but I don't think that he was secure. He was hoping just to find that one thing that would give him that final assurance that he needed. Instead, he ran into a brick wall. In the case of this rich young ruler, his idol was possessions. They were too important for him to give up. But he needed to push away his possessions in order to put God first. And what he discovered was that he had a covetous heart. Jesus called him to repent and to believe the good news. In his case, what it meant was turning away from his stuff that, he, that represented his own personal God. Smashing his idol and trusting himself entirely to Jesus was what he needed to do. And he went away sad. But he didn't go away defiant. He went away sad because he understood the challenge. You may go away defiant. I'm not listening to that stuff, you may say. You go, may go away sad because Jesus is putting his finger on your life. Maybe some conviction. You face the challenge. This man goes away sad, but another little man shows up on his front porch, glad. Little Zacchaeus, remember? And Jesus comes out on the steps of the house and says, today salvation has come to this house. Can Jesus stand in front on your porch and say that of you, they, salvation, has come to this house? Do you have an idol keeping you from closer fellowship with God? Think about it. Is it your work? Is it your habit of needing to constantly be titillated by Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Netflix, or fill in the blank all the time? Or is it a secret sin that you have which you are coveting? Dear friend, there is nothing you have which is a secret to God. Are you just a nice guy or a nice girl interested in eternity and trying to do your best in living in the forlorn hope that a good God, if he exists, will reward nice people for trying their best? Is that you? If it was the way to eternal life, this encounter with the rich young ruler would not be in the Bible. But it is in the Bible because just trying to do your best in life is not the way. Jesus is. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Father, we are beggars, and we have no bread. We are debtors, and we have no money. 
but you have poured out for us a treasure in Jesus. You've given us a pearl of great price. Oh God, let us not walk away from him. Help us seek him while he can be found. Help us to release our hold and what keeps us away from him. For we ask it in his name. Amen.